Let's go together now before our God in a prayer of petition, asking for his help and his work in our church. I will lead us in prayer. If you agree with what you hear as I close, would you just, as a congregation, verbally say amen? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you that we can come to you, not placing our hope in our own goodness, but on the righteousness that is ours in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray this morning for our church. We pray for members who are simply walking through the normal course of the Christian life this week. Father, we together pray this morning for Kathy Bowman as she works this week. May she honor you as she serves her employer. Help her to be a faithful testimony of what a Christian looks like in her workplace and in her love for Darren. Father, we pray for Clayton Durr as he does his work with excellence this week at the post office. Father, may he honor you. Give him energy to help Abby at home and give him rest and give him meaningful encouragement from brothers in this church. Father, we pray for members who are walking through trials this week. We think of Arnett Holland as she had a stroke this last Sunday morning. Father, thank you for her recovery. Thank you for her faith. Father, thank you for her model of joy and trust. We pray that you would give her continued healing. We pray that she would look to you and that she would recover her strength. Father, for the Romans Bible study that begins with our ladies on Tuesday evening, we pray that you would guide them and give them a knowledge of yourself. Father, for our men's retreat, that begins this week with many men in our church. We pray for deepened relationships. We pray for confession and transparency between our men. We pray that you would help our men to lead our homes faithfully. Father, for our wives that stay home with the children while the men are away, we pray that you'd give them joy and endurance. We pray that our men would value their wives and not underappreciate their ministry. Father, your word tells us to pray not just for ourselves, but for kings and all who are in authority. And so we pray for Governor Ron DeSantis. Father, we pray for our president, Joe Biden. Father, we pray for our vice president, Kamala Harris. Father, let these leaders and many others in our government lead well in a way that would promote peace and the spread of the gospel in our land. Father, give us respect for the authorities that you have sovereignly placed over us. Father, may First Boynton be marked by an uncommon respect of authorities in our day when it's acceptable to ridicule authorities. May we be salty. May we be different in our respect. Father, we pray not only for our church, we pray for other churches this morning. Uh, we pray this morning for Faith Bible Church in Naples, Florida. Father, thank you for their faithful love of Christ and their clear proclamation of the gospel in Naples. Father, may their church grow and may more be added to their number. May they grow in love of Jesus Christ. Bring renewal to Naples because of the work of Faith Bible. 
Father, we pray for their pastor, Pastor Justin Harris, as he preaches this morning. Use his preaching, we pray. Be with them as they begin their study in the book of Exodus. May they see Christ and his deliverance. Father, we pray that you would show us Christ this morning. Open our eyes to see the glory and the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Help us to understand what we do not naturally understand in our own sight. Let your word inform us. May we sit under your word, scripture, and may it change us. We ask for this in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, significant decisions deserve significant attention. And honestly, significant attention to something shows that a decision is important, doesn't it? Think of Annie Dillard, who tells the story of a famous expedition to the North Pole in 1835. She recounts the story of how Sir John Franklin set out with 138 officers and men to find passage across the Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. Now, noticeably, notably, the, the ships that went on this journey carried minimal coal for their journey. But for this Arctic expedition, the officers estimated that they could take along with them a, a, a wide array of accoutrements, such as a hand organ, an extensive library of books, China place settings for each of the officers, cut glass wine goblets, and perhaps most interestingly, silver forks and knives made of ornate Victorian design with heavy handles, rich patterns, and family crests on each of them. For an Arctic expedition. The crew was last seen aboard their ships in high spirits, in glory and fanfare. Not a single crew member survived. The ships were found packed in frozen ice. The bodies were found over the following 20 years as search parties recovered the skeletons. Many bodies were found across the Arctic terrain, pulling small boats across the ice. All evidence points to a variety of long and slow deaths. More than one group was found still clinging to their precious treasures, frozen. Such as one search party that found a sleigh with two skeletons who had made it 60 miles across the ice, carrying in their sleigh some tea, some chocolate, and a great deal of table silverware. What use did these table settings serve them in the end? What a tragic misestimation of the type of journey that lay ahead of them. This was the miscalculated Franklin expedition. You can read about it sometime after the service. 
Significant decisions deserve significant attention. So I ask you today, what about a far lengthier and far weightier expedition that all of us in this room are on? What attention does the journey toward eternal life deserve in your life? What focus will that require? As a church, we've been studying chapter by chapter through the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, written as an account of the life of Jesus Christ and his teachings. We've been learning from Christ as he teaches on the nature of God, the nature of himself, uh, the nature of eternity, and of, of us following him. Jesus has been warning us in really just no uncertain terms about the, the, the journey that we're on and where we're headed. And in the past few weeks, he's asked us to consider if we're headed to an eternal banquet or eternal torment. And so if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Let me just encourage you, if you bring your Bibles and you open them as I'm talking, you can just read along to make sure that what I'm saying is coming from the text. And then you can also learn it better for yourself to make sure that your life is founded not upon the words of any one speaker or preacher, but upon God's word, as we explain that to you week in and week out. So Luke chapter 14, we're going to be in verse 25 and following. There in verse 25, you'll immediately notice the context that, that great crowds were coming and they were following Jesus. Many people wanted to accompany this man who was full of great teaching and miracles. Now, if you or I were teaching the things that Jesus had been teaching, we might naturally assume that these great crowds, well, they were a good thing. We want many people to come and follow. We would only encourage people to come along. I mean, you could just think of maybe this room. If this room just filled up with people, like packed in, door to door, we might say, let's just make sure we keep them in here. Like, make sure we don't step on their toes. Make sure that they can keep coming in so they can keep hearing truth. Well, not Jesus. He, he looks down the pathway that's in front of him, the journey that lays ahead. And he says to anyone that wants to come with him on this journey he's on, that this expedition deserves significant attention. Notice three times in the passage that Mitch had just read for us, he repeats the refrain of those who cannot be my disciple. It's almost as if he's arguing us out of following him. Let's just think clearly about what he's saying. He wants us to focus our attention before we even get on the boat. So Jesus says to the crowds, consider the cost of true discipleship. That's Jesus' argument for today in a nutshell. Consider the cost of true discipleship. That will be the argument of my sermon as well, what I'll unpack. It's, it's simple and straightforward, but honestly, it will take us a lifetime to plumb the depths of it. To the crowds and to us listening, Jesus says, consider the cost of true discipleship. Let's see this together from the text. First, if, if you're taking notes, notice how Jesus says to consider the cost. So following Jesus is a decision, which should include a valuation of sorts. It should be, include a, an estimate of what is worthwhile. Jesus doesn't want disciples who passively fall into following him. He doesn't want his disciples to set out on this journey just by happenstance. 
you want to be a follower of Christ, this is not a spontaneous, random, or light decision. Look at how he illustrates this, just right in the middle of our passage today. Look at verse 28 through 32. Jesus gives us there two parables back to back. Let me read them for us. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So do you want to follow Jesus? Jesus says, think of a building project and think of a war. Any good investor who is funding a tower knows not to get excited just about the mere announcement of the tower. He must consider if he can fund the whole project. Building is a tedious process which uses plenty of resources with a reward that honestly chiefly comes at the end, not primarily at the announcement of the beginning of it. If you hastily start to build out of mere excitement, embarrassment might be in front of you, Jesus is saying. You'll start building and then you'll just realize that, that you can't finish. Or think even of a more serious illustration. Think of entering into a war. A general of an army would not, would be embarrassed to ha enter hastily into a war. He'd be foolish because he'd be taking his own life into his hands. Even more so if, if the odds are against him. Notice that's the context here. If what he's proposing, he's considering is defeating a larger army, an unlikely success, Jesus has told us already that following him is a narrow road, hasn't he? Consider the cost of true discipleship. Jesus tells those who are listening to him, who are following him, to stop and consider the cost. To think about it. And let me just pause here and try to help apply this to some of us. Let me just begin with those of us who are church members here, part of the, the church family here at First Baptist. This passage, church, is one reason why we want to be constantly on guard for any bait-and-switch approaches to building our church. This is not what the world of Christianity around us says to do. The world around us says, get them in the door first, and then treat them like a frog in the kettle. Just slowly turn it up until you finally reach boiling point and see if they don't jump. They're not Jesus. Friends, we want to have truth in advertising about what it means to see the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ and to consider what it will cost. So practically, church members, let me give you some examples of this. When we minister in children's ministry on Sunday mornings, or in our midweek Awana program with our children, we want to be quick to encourage our children and teach them. And we want to be slow to assure them 
of their faith. We're grabbing that phrase from Michael Lawrence. He talks about being quick to encourage, slow to assure. So we encourage our children. Parents, you should do this too. Encourage your children that, that following Jesus is the best lifelong building project that they could ever possibly make. And yet be slow to assure them that they've done that. Or be slow to tell them that they, they need to make a decision now. Especially when the first 5, 10, even 15 years of their lives, they're just still understanding what this even means. We'll be a church that, that doesn't push child baptisms. We'll be a church that doesn't pressure our children into decisions. So we'll be happy to encourage them to consider the worth of Christ. By the way, parents, if as you hear me talking about this, there's any part of you that struggles with this idea, just notice verse 28 and 31, and let them free up your conscience just to be patient. In both of these examples, Jesus speaks of sitting down. Do you see that? Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able? A king going to war, sitting down. So maybe you could just think of your childhood, the, the years of your children in this church as a chance to just sit down and consider the gospel year after year, deliberate. Is Jesus worth it? Let me give another example. I'll be shorter with this one. Consider the cost up front will be clear about church membership. We will not merely want to fill the seats of this room, but will we want to be clear about the expectations that Jesus gives us? We'll want to share that openly with anyone who wants to join us. Or in your evangelism, consider the cost. Considering the cost will lead us to not want to water down the gospel when we talk to others. So employees here today or, or college students, as you're talking to friends or, or fellow coworkers, you will not need to water down the truth of the gospel. The world around us can water down the gospel enough. It doesn't need our help. We should not try to make it more palatable. Yes, present it winsomely, but present it honestly. Present it clearly. You know, I would just venture to guess that your friends, anyone who might be considering Christianity, will respect you more if you can be winsome and clear but also honest about what the Bible says. They, they don't need you to hide it in the fine print. Let me just notice one other thing about these parables before we move on. And let me notice this to anyone who's visiting here today. Maybe you're visiting and you're learning about what, who Christ is. Please notice that these two illustrations are very similar, but slightly different. The building project that we're to consider is one that we choose to enter into. Did you see that? But the war, oh, the war that Jesus compares following him to, that's something that's coming against us. So it must be considered. It's the situation you're in. You have 10,000, and the other army is coming with 20,000. What is Jesus doing here? Do you see the difference? With the building project, Jesus is saying, uh, can you afford to be my disciple. But with the war, Jesus is saying, can you afford not to be my disciple? The decision is coming, whether you like it or not. 
So dear unbelieving friend, if you're here today and you're just considering Jesus for the first time, let me encourage you, Jesus sees that decision that you're thinking about as you listen to me talk as if you are at war with a small army and you've got to make a decision. How are you going to get out of the situation you're in? The urgency is there. Uh, second, you must, we must, this passage teaches us, consider the cost of true discipleship. Now I want to just focus on those middle two words, on the cost. Consider the cost of true discipleship. You see, in this passage, we find that, that Jesus is no sleazy salesman who hides the, the details of what is selling in, in a fine print. It's not like those, those websites where you, you find a good deal that you're excited about, you put it in your cart, you go to checkout, and it's like three times more expensive than what you thought it was because of all the fees that are added in. Oh, no, 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 that's not how Jesus treats following him. No, he couldn't be more honest. He, he couldn't be more upfront about what he expects of you. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, he'll tell you what it will cost. Everything. It'll cost you everything you have. No reservations. No prenuptial uh, written out for you and Jesus, no. You just give him everything. Co-sign him onto your bank account. It's his. Your family, your possessions, your very self. It will cost you everything. Let's see this from the text. Actually, before I do, let me just address, maybe you're still figuring out Christianity, and this sounds strange. Maybe you're saying, you know, I thought that the message of Christianity was that it's free. This is a free gift that, that Christ gives us. How does that fit? I think one uh, anonymous author put it well when they said, salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. You see, we do receive God's grace freely by no work of our own. We've sinned against him as human beings. We've wronged him. He sent his son Jesus to come and, and pay the debt of our sin. We can receive that gift. We can be made right with God when we trust by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. This is free for anyone here who would believe. And yet, this good news of the gospel, this good news of free forgiveness, free relationship, the Bible is clear that this is a gift that will then result in you giving up all that you have. And that if you don't, if this does not result in that, it is a sign that you have never experienced this life-changing grace. Oh, my friends, let me encourage you, consider the gospel today if you haven't already. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. How does Jesus explain that here? Look at verse 26. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Look down at verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You must hate 
your family? I, that's, that's what I just read to you. You must hate your children. Hey, parents, can you feel the weight of this? Hate your wife? But what a strong passage. If this sounds like shocking language to you, well, good. That's the point. Jesus is trying to get your attention with some very strong language. In a moment, I'll, I'll help you get your head around how we can understand this and square this with Scripture. But as I do, I don't want you to lose the impact of the rhetoric that Jesus is choosing here. Jesus chooses the most evocative language possible to hate, to describe the most important and precious relationships that any of us could ever have. He wants you to be thinking about the greatness of this cost. Now, obviously, throughout the Bible, we are told that we are to love each of these relationships. But here, notice Jesus is speaking within the context of describing his love for him, our discipleship, which means he's speaking here of a relative love, a love in comparison. So this word hate, I understand, to be used rhetorically, not literally. I don't understand him telling you to go out and just hate your family and be horrible with them. No, his, his giving shocking language to get our attention about the relative comparison of our affection to Jesus as our, compared to our affection to everyone else. The B.D. Anyanwile, in his commentary, says this so helpfully. He says, by hate... Jesus means to make these relationships such a distant second priority relative to him that it seems that you hate them by comparison. Do you get what it's doing here? It's saying when you stack up anything or anyone that you could possibly love in this world and you compare it to Jesus, the difference is so astronomical because Jesus is so clearly in your life in that place of priority. And so he tells us to hate our parents, our, our siblings, our, our children. If you're struggling to see this, this way that I'm understanding this as a rhetorical tool to get our attention, just this afternoon you can jot down Matthew 10, 37. There Jesus says the same exact point and he just phrases it differently which helps illuminate it. He says that we cannot love any of these more than him. Friends, the point is that when it comes to the devotion of our family, our devotion is first to Jesus Christ. And there can be absolutely no question in your heart or in what others see of your life that you love Jesus far more than anything else and anyone else. American culture would have you bow to the idol of family. And they would say it's biblical. Bow down here. Jesus says, oh, love your family, but love them by loving me first with such a great difference that it, it looks like hate to the watching world. Oh, oh beloved, dear church, I honestly wept on Friday as I 
wrote this section of the sermon. And, and I, I pictured your faces. And I, I looked through our directory and knew how many of you grieve where your families are. The cost of discipleship means that it's right that Jesus demands first place every time on every relationship that you have with no exceptions. And this will look to a watching world like hate. This will look, this world around us will say that you hate your spouse and your children when you insist that vacations and local sports leagues and precious family time come second place to being involved in a local church on a Sunday morning. This world will say that you hate your brother and sister when you refuse to affirm their homosexual lifestyle. And rather than offer approval, you simply offer unending love to them. They'll say that is hate speech. Friends, this world will say that you hate your father and mother when you, in grace and love and winsomeness, tell them the gospel clearly. And they start to realize that even with all the love and winsome grace that you can muster, you are saying that without Christ, they are headed to an eternity apart from Christ. They'll say that's hate. Oh, parents, grandparents, this world will say that you hate your children and your grandchildren when you spend 18 years of their lives training them and praying for them that one day they will love Jesus more than anything else. Praying that one day they might even love Jesus to go to the mission field. Praying that maybe one day you would have the privilege to send your child or your grandchild away from you to live and die telling the gospel to those that need to hear it on the other side of the world. This world will say that looks like hate. This world will say you hate your wife, husbands, when you choose to make otherworldly sacrifices for your family and for your wife, with her consent, caring for her, loving for her, yes. But when you lead your wife, husbands, to otherworldly priorities with where you live and what you buy and what car you drive so that the kingdom can move forward, this world will say that looks like hate. But if you cannot love Jesus more than these, then you cannot be his disciple. He says, it's all or nothing. This is true not only for your family, but notice it's true of your finances. Down in verse 33, he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus seems to be speaking here of possessions. And the cost of discipleship is on everything that you own. Everything. So just picture it right now, kind of put it in your mind's eye, think of your car, think of your house, think of your 401k, think of whatever precious belonging is in your house that if it caught fire, you'd run in and grab. Jesus says, all of that, whatever you have, it's mine. Renounce it all, Jesus says. 
sign it over to me. Now, I'll let you be a steward of it for a few years, but I'm the owner. I'll call the shots on every penny you ever make. Are you ready to say that to Jesus? You see, Jesus offers no money-back guarantee on your discipleship. He's not inviting you to just try it out. He doesn't offer a sample package. Like, try a little bit of my authority and, and keep the rest for yourself and see how it works. Oh, no. He says, I come in like a king, and you have to get off your throne and abdicate to me. I'll sit on the throne. It's all mine now. You'll no longer be able to squeeze whatever you, little joy you can selfishly out of every dollar you have, but you'll rather say every item, every foot of square space in your house, every, every last penny in your retirement fund, oh, I want to use it for Jesus. I want to leverage it for Jesus. I'm his disciple. To do so would be, to not do so would be foolish, friends. I mean, if you believe what this book says about eternity, to do anything less than this would be, well, be like grabbing silver table settings and clinging to them as you make your way across the Arctic and being frozen to death, holding precious chocolates. How foolish would that be? Jesus says, renounce it all, or you'll die clutching them in the ice. Now, some of you here today aren't, aren't living like this. Some of us aren't living, all of us, I would argue, in some way aren't living like this. Some of you aren't giving to a church like you believe this to be true. And I'm not merely talking about this church. Whatever church you join, wherever you go, you're not giving regularly and sacrificially. You're giving sometimes when you feel like it. Some of you could be using your homes more, offering them with, with open hands, but you're not. You're not yet renouncing all that you have. Some of you haven't even thought through what you have and said, I'll renounce it for Jesus. I'll give it to him. I'll be, I'll be just a steward, not an owner. What is it for you? Uh, the cost stretches from family to finances to even yourself. I hope you saw that in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. But what, what a call to young people today to those of us who are in the, the early years of our careers with ambitions and dreams and desires. Jesus says, I want everything from here till death. I want your dreams. I want your job. I want your station in life. I want you to use it for me. I, I want your retirement. What a countercultural thing to say in South Florida. I want you to use every penny of your retirement to make much of me. That's what Jesus says. Friends, if you're feeling any conviction right now, let me encourage you not to lose it in this moment. Don't walk out that door challenged and unchanged. If the Lord is putting something on your heart, if there's an area that you're, you've held back, maybe he's showing you something right now, a way you haven't been using your possessions or your, your aspirations or your family for him, let me encourage you right now, make a decision. I'm going to tell someone this today. I'm just going to verbalize it to to some other member in this church. 
Maybe after the service, maybe over lunch, maybe uh, at home tonight with your spouse. Maybe you just pick up the phone or you send a text message or maybe in the evening service, you grab someone after the service. Make a point to just name it, confess it, acknowledge it. Tell another member, I haven't been renouncing this to Christ as I ought. Maybe then they'll take a minute and pray with you and ask that you could change course. Friends, the good news is that Jesus promises to use this kind of discipleship. And that's where Jesus goes next. Uh, consider, consider the cost of true discipleship. Consider the cost of true discipleship. Let's think together about that last part of the phrase, true discipleship. What do, what do we mean when we say true discipleship? Well, honestly, we mean a lot of things, but from this passage, it at least means two things. It at least means a new distinction and a new identity. Let me talk about both. First, a new distinction. This is what true discipleship looks like. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So salt in the ancient world would be often dug up out of the rock. And because it was often mixed with other minerals like gypsum and other impurities, it was actually possible for the salt to dissolve out of the block. The result would be a, a product that had been called salt, but its saltiness was just gone. Uh, the salt, the part that was the, the preservative, the, the, the taste, the distinction, well, that was out of the block, and it was no longer useful for any purpose. It, it, you couldn't even add it to fertilizer. It's like a hazardous waste that you just need to get rid of. So what is Jesus doing threading together this illustration here? Is this just a, a random proverb that he wants to tack on to the end of his message? I don't think so. Here's what I think Jesus might be saying. Do you want to be useless or do you want to be useful? You must be distinct set apart by having your priorities right in your discipleship. I must be chief in all things. And then you'll be distinct. Then you'll be useful to me. When you treasure me above all else, oh, that's a saltiness I can use. This world, friends, is starving for lives that see past all lesser secondary priorities. It's starving for people that can see how to get across the Arctic without clinging to the silverware, with clinging to the right things so you actually make it. You want to be useful? You want to be salty? Treasure Jesus. Let him be your chief joy, your chief affection in all of your life. Take every part of everything you can think about any part of your life and say, use it for Jesus, whatever it looks like. The world is starving for that. Yet how many of us are still clinging onto our chocolates as we walk, try to walk across the cold? But this also means not only a new distinction, it means a new identity. 
Oh, beloved, did you notice verse 27? I skipped over it. Go back. Verse 27, Jesus says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So to bear your cross meant to lift the beam of wood up on your shoulder, the beam that you would see used for your death, and, and to carry it to your death. Uh, Jesus is calling us here to a form of execution of ourselves. To walk in the path of a criminal. Here's the glory of it. As another commentator pointed out, what, which criminal's path is he telling us to walk on? Whose path are we to take? Friends, the Bible teaches that when we become Christians, we die. And we are united unto Christ. Our life becomes his life. We are united to him in his death. And so therefore we can be united with him in his life. This is what Jesus demands. He wants us to say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. And so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is a whole new identity. This is a, a whole new radical way of thinking. When Jesus says, come after me by taking your cross, his saying, put yourself to death and walk in my steps. Be united with me in my death so that you can be united with me in my life. What a glorious thing. What a glorious identity. Notice this verse uh, 37 here. It's, it's in the present active tense. The ESV doesn't translate it this way, but it, it's literally, whoever is not bearing his cross and is not coming after me cannot be my disciple. The idea is that this is ongoing and continual. It's a, this never-ending state for those of us who are believers. Our own lives are just constantly not our own. We're just constantly ready to say, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live. Christ lives in me. Friends, this is true discipleship. Let me, let me close with a story and a quote, which I think puts on display that the cost of denying family and life with an eternal perspective of the glory of Christ. The, the quote comes from a letter to Mr. John Hasseltine. Now, John Hasseltine had a daughter of marrying age named Anne. A young man had gotten to know his daughter and wrote John to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage. Anne was a believer. She was sold out to Christ. John was a believer. And here this man comes wanting to marry his daughter. But there was a catch. The catch was that this man was going to the mission field to the dangerous country of Burma. Listen to the letter that Adoniram Judson wrote to Mr. John Hasseltine asking for his daughter's hand in marriage. Listen for how he asked permission to marry his daughter. He writes, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, 
whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps even a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior? from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Do you see how convincing he is, this man, to give his daughter away? John Hasseltine said yes. He allowed his daughter to decide. Anne married the missionary. She went and died a painful death after living a horrible life in Burma. Oh, that God would raise up a church full of Johns and Anns and Adonirams among us today. Won't you treasure Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for the clarity with which Jesus calls us to follow him. We pray, O oh God, that you would work in us, that we would give you all that we have. We pray that we would be a people that can say that we have been crucified with Christ, and therefore to live is Christ. And it, it is no longer our lives which we are living, but yours, O oh God. May we treasure Christ that way, O oh God. Work this in our church. Work this in each of us, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.